Hi everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for a Q&A. One of the unfortunate things about Monday match analysis, when there's tennis going on, and of course, we all wish that were the case right now, we all wish everything were normal, but uh, one, of the, one of the issues is, I'm breaking down the match, I might be previewing next week's tournament, I might be doing an interview, I might be doing a power rankings, and I know that there are a lot of comments that I don't get to, which is a tragedy, really. I want to get to all of them, um, and doing something like this gives me the opportunity to do it. I've always kind of thought about and considered doing a bit of a spinoff uh, and doing like a, a weekly live chat. One of my favorite YouTubers in mixed martial arts, Luke Thomas, does a weekly live chat. So that that's always something that I've considered. Um, so let's see how this goes. I posted in the community tab asking for your comments as always, and I got some good ones. So let's jump right into this. The first one, how do you think Del Potro's career would be by now if he hadn't had so many big injuries? It's a really good one. And I don't see any way if you just think about where he was at in, let's say, 2009, where he breaks through, beats Nadal in the semis, Federer in the final. Federer was in the midst of, of a streak of five straight U.S. Open titles. That's definitely a match I want to go back and break down on a Monday Match Analysis classic. But if you look at where he was at at that point in his career— he was destined to become a perennial Grand Slam contender. If I look at his skill set, it is at least equal to that of Stan Wawrinka or Andy Murray. I'm not saying that their games are similar. I'm saying the, the level that he was capable of, at the very least. And Murray, a lot more consistent than, than Stan. And I think that there are questions that actually ask me about uh, Murray and Stan a little bit later. But uh, Stan may be a, um, perhaps a higher peak level. That's certainly arguable. But Del Potro, certainly on that level. And what happened is, you know, first he had a right wrist injury. And he came back just fine from that one. Then he had a left wrist injury. He never really came back from the left wrist surgery. Because particularly his topspin backhand it just never reached the level that he had in, say, 2009 when he won the U.S. Open, where the forehand was always the big weapon, the the massive kind of hammer of a forehand that he had. But he could really rip the backhand as well. I mean, he could, he could rip for a down-the-line winner if he had to. That really escaped him. That was no longer in his game after his original left wrist surgery. He would have complications, and he had a second surgery on his left wrist. Then he came back and practically couldn't get topspin on his backhand. Either had to hit it flat, or but anytime it was low, and keep in mind he's six foot six. Anytime it was really well below waist level, he had to slice it because he couldn't really drop his racket head below the height of the ball when it was low. So you had Del Potro essentially with a slice backhand or kind of a flat backhand, couldn't really take it down the line. And guess what? All that considered, he made it back to the U.S. Open final in 2018. 
nine years after he won it. So if Del Potro made the U.S. Open final with half a backhand, I mean, could you imagine what his career would have been if he continued to, first of all, stay on tour consistently? That's the biggest thing, to not have the stop, start, stop, start. But also, if he didn't lose that backhand, how much more effective he would have been. Um, hopefully, he makes a comeback and his career isn't over right now. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, I mean, to me, at least he would have had a career, the, the same kind of career that Murray and Vavrinka had. They both won uh, three Grand Slam titles. Which rivalry is more entertaining to you, Nadal team or Djokovic-Vavrinka? Um, also, what's your favorite rivalry in tennis and why? So I think that Djokovic-Vavrinka has been a superior, uh, a superior rivalry to Nadal team. Nadal and team have had some, they've had some good battles, best of three on clay where it's been kind of even and team has managed to get the better of Nadal uh, a bunch of times. But in terms of Roland Garros, the classic match hasn't happened yet. I mean, it, it will come. I'm very confident that pretty soon team and Nadal are going to play a classic match at the French on court Philippe Chatrier second weekend. That's coming. It just hasn't happened yet. And until that happened, until that happens, rather, you have to give the edge to Djokovic and Vavrinka, who've played, I mean, one of the one of the best matches of the decade, for sure, in 2013 at the Australian Open. I think it was the round of 16. Um, they also had a great meeting at the U.S. Open that went five sets, and in um, in 2015, you had the French Open final. Now, that wasn't really your classic epic match per se, but the stakes were enormous and the pressure in that match. And it was an upset and a plot twist because Djokovic beats Nadal in straight sets in the quarterfinals. He goes all the way to the final and the script was written for Novak Djokovic to win his first French Open and Stan plays spoiler. So... There's uh, there's more chapters to be written in the Nadal team rivalry for sure, but right now Vavrinka Djokovic is is a better rivalry, and it's always produced great tennis as well. My favorite rivalry in tennis, I mean, it's probably Federer Djokovic, um, and. All, all the big three rivalries are so incredible. Um, I would say that the Nadal-Djokovic rivalry, tactically, it, it's become just a little bit monotonous. And I think a lot of their matches are, are starting to look very similar to each other. Um, where Federer and Djokovic, I, I think, are still kind of grappling tactically and there's um there's just a lot of different ways that that match tends to go i think that for some reason djokovic's defense has been is is normally tested a little bit more by Federer's first strike tennis and i just don't think nadal has brought his best stuff off clay against djokovic enough and i don't know why that is because there's there's just been a couple times where Nadal um, 
hasn't really risen to the occasion against Djokovic. I find that Federer, and I'm talking off clay now, Djokovic and and um, and Nadal had that trilogy of French Open finals where Nadal won all three, but uh, the one in was it 20, 2013 was a really great five-setter. So that's a highlight. I don't know. It's just a little bit more even. I'd say Federer Djokovic. What's your style of play, Gil? Also, do you like playing on clay, and is it your favorite surface? Which of the next-gen guys, according to you, have games the most suited for clay courts and grass courts, respectively? So my style of play changed because, I mean, I, I became unathletic. When I, when I was athletic... I, I I really was a grinder. Um, I had a good return. I had a kick serve, but not much of like a... I wasn't going to ace anyone, but I had a good kick serve. And uh, I, I hit my kick serve on my first serve a lot. So it was very much predicated around wearing people down, being physical. And uh, my forehand was really big. My backhand was not at all. I just traded it most of the times. But I, w I was a grinder. No doubt about it. Like, uh, and, you know, like Ferrer. Like Ferrer is, is the best way I can describe it. Clay, yeah, I mean, you would think I would like clay, but I didn't get enough practice on it. I mean, I played on red clay. I was fairly successful on it in terms of, like, tournament play, but um, I played so much more on hardcore that I was um, undoubtedly better on hardcore because I was more used to it. And you'll find that's the case in the United States, pretty much all across the country. Which of the next-gen guys um, are more, most suited for clay and grass? With clay, it, it's hard to say. It's interesting. Now, Tsitsipas, in my opinion, is going to be really good on clay because of the heavy topspin on his forehand. Um, of course, we're leaving team out of the next-gen conversation because he's not next-gen. But I just want to clarify that. there There's really not... Um, I think Zverev's best surface is clay because he's so consistent and um, he's hard to finish. He moves well. He grinds. He doesn't miss very much. Uh, he's got the big serve. And I know that's not a clay court attribute, but it, it translates uh, um, nonetheless. On grass, I, I really think Medvedev on a modern grass court should be able to do some damage with his big serve and his flat hitting. The ball stays low. So I'm really keying in on Medvedev. I think Tsitsipas, though, could also do really well on grass, getting to the net as often as he does. Who else? Who else should I surface-wise? Felix's best surface tends to be clay. That should not continue, though. Um... It, that that's just been the case in, early in his career. I don't I don't really think that will continue. Am I missing someone? Shapo Shapovalov's best on a on a on a hard court, no doubt. I mean, he's not grass and clay, or honestly, he's just not as good on the natural surfaces. Not even close compared to what he can do on hard courts. Hi, Gil. Out of Murray, Vavrinka, and Del Potro, who would you consider to have a the highest peak level? B, the highest low level. C, enjoyed watching the most. Yeah, so okay, there you go. I mean, I compared those three um, earlier. Highest peak level, Vavrinka. Um, it, it's arguable. And look, I mean, uh, someone, Murray's Corner would say, did Stan ever get to number one in the world? No. But I do feel that when Vavrinka is peaking, 
he is the best out of this bunch. Highest low level is certainly Murray. So consistent. Really hard to finish. Incredible defense. Incredible court coverage. Incredible returns. Never really misses your routine ground stroke. Doesn't give, give, give away anything easy. Really good, really good hands in terms of how he finds ways to finish points. So Murray, you don't really see Murray go off the rails ever. Enjoyed watching the most. Probably Del Potro. Probably Del Potro. Maybe that's because, first of all, I think he plays with a lot of heart, wears his emotion on his sleeve. That's attractive to me. Um, that's one That's one area where like, I'll kind of say, uh, I'll put my personal preference into this because that's what the question calls for. I like emotional players. Going back to the 2009 like US Open final, I don't know why Del Potro cried. <laughs> after the third set, but he did. And hey, I thought that was pretty cool that he cried and came back and won the match. I've never seen that before, but Del Potro is a fighter. The forehand is a pleasure to watch, just like the Vavrinka backhand is a pleasure to watch. But Now, by the way, highest peak level, a lot of people like to ask that. I don't think it's very valuable. I really, I truly, from the bottom of my heart, I don't think it's very valuable to have a high peak level. Now, hear me out. I know that could be thought of as like some kind of hot take, but no one plays their peak level for an extended period of time. No one plays it over the course of three sets in a best of five. So your peak level isn't all that important. There are players with super high peak levels, top 10 level peak levels. That sentence might not make any sense, but... I think you get what I'm trying to say. And and they might not be very successful. So it's fun. It it is fun to think about, but do you think Andy Murray can return to the top of men's tennis or do you think his career is finished? He did well to win Antwerp last year, but then he got re-injured. I mean, I, I actually I don't know. It's it's tough because it, what he did last year was wildly impressive. Wildly impressive. To come back to form and to, to win a title like he did, to beat Vavrinka in the final at Antwerp, unbelievable. He still has it. He clearly still has it. The ball striking was, was right where it left off. So... This is where this is what I expect out of Murray. I expect that he plays well enough to have a proper goodbye. Right now, it's not a proper goodbye. He abruptly had to announce his possible retirement at the Aussie. He came back a year later, was working his way up, you know, couldn't play the US Open. And just never got his proper goodbye. I think Murray's going to get his proper goodbye, and I think he'll be very content with how he finishes off his career. I don't think it's the end of Andy Murray. Most improved player of the last 18 months. Hard to argue with Daniil Medvedev, who went from a player who didn't take his fitness very seriously, cramped up all the time, 
And as a result, he he had the ability to play consistent tennis and have high shot tolerance. He had the strokes to make it happen, but he didn't have the fitness to make it happen. If you're not fit, it doesn't matter if you can hit 50 backhands without missing. You're not going to want to do it. You're not going to have the ability to do it. You're going to go for you're going to go to look to end the point. And Medvedev was a player who had to just try to end points when that was never really his game. It's still not his game, but he started taking fitness really seriously. He he developed a, a more professional mindset where he was doing the things that a professional needs to do, not stay up until 3 a.m., to get in the ice bath after a match. These are all things that not everyone on tour does, but the, prof- the, but the consummate professionals on tour do. And Medvedev turned into that and started playing the way that he needs to play because of that. So hard to argue with Daniil Medvedev. Will COVID-19 end the big three era? I really don't think so. I really, really don't think so. In fact, I have a theory. We'll see if it's true. I have a theory that when everyone comes back, there is going to be a dominance, a dominance at the top of the game. Those who have the resources, and I know I've gotten into this before, uh, we got into it with Jeff. I got into it with Jeff Salzenstein a little bit on Monday Match Analysis. The players who have the resources, home gyms, home courts to train right right now, they are going to be at an advantage. And I just don't buy in to the fact that the main thing that ages a player is biology. I think it's wear and tear. You ever seen a tennis player's feet? They're ugly. Their feet are ugly. Because every time you go through a, a grueling week of tournament play, you're just you're putting miles on your body. And as they sit home and do mobility exercises and stay loose and strengthen and basically I'm sure they're doing off-season-like fitness and, and they're hitting tennis balls, I just don't think they're aging right now. I just don't. So I don't think that biology is the main factor. If the layoff became really, really, really long, then we could have a different discussion. But I don't think a six-month layoff, let's say this is a six-month layoff, and I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing out a number. This is not my prediction. But let's just say six months. I don't think the big three will have aged. And I think they come back, hit the ground running. And the main players who this might rob is the players who are in the middle of developing. Are the big three still developing? Yes, but fine-tuning. A big difference. Fine-tuning. Where I think your your Dominic teams and your Tsitsipas and your Medvedevs, they were doing more Felix especially, Shapovalov especially. The, the former three are a little bit closer. The latter three have so much untapped potential. And they're in the middle of developing. The break stunts their development. It will only delay the inevitable, which is them getting to where they need to get in order to break through. COVID-19, to me, does not hurt the big three. It hurts the players trying to develop 
and uh, progress enough to crack the code. Hi, Gil. I hope you, along with your family, are safe. Thanks. You too. I personally think one of the reasons for Rafa not beating Novak on hard courts is that he's a slow starter. By the time he gets his rhythm, he's trailing by a long margin and eventually loses. Your thoughts? There's more to this question, but let me just stop here. Really good point. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think especially if you if you pinpoint Nadal's forehand, I just don't think he's starting matches with the forehand firing at 100%. And I think Nadal should probably look at that. Against Djokovic, if you look at the last couple times they've played, heck, if you look at the final against Medvedev at the U.S. Open, Nadal's forehand is just, it, it doesn't, it's not there right away. And it requires him a little bit of hitting from the back, some repetition, some, some rhythm, until he finds that. And Djokovic has started extraordinarily fast. He's made a habit out of that, especially in big matches. Yeah, I think that's hurting it all. Absolutely. I also think Rafa's number one ranking could not have come at a worse time because team was number five. And he has to face him in the 2018 U.S. Open quarterfinals where he had to retire against Delpo in the semis and this year's Aussie Open. 2018 U.S. Open, Nadal wasn't winning that tournament. It just wasn't going to happen. His knees were not prepared to do it. I don't care what his draw was. At the end of that tournament, his knees were going to... There were signs all throughout the summer that Nadal's knees weren't right. Um, so I just don't think it was going to happen for him at the 2018 U.S. Open. Uh, do you think jo if Djokovic versus team could have happened in the quarterfinals, Nole would have had enough energy for the last two matches? I don't know. Hard to say. Hard to say. Um, hi, who do you think has the best one-handed backhand and why? Uh, pretty simple here, just between Vavrinka and Federer. Uh, everyone agrees. Federer's backhand, he's got the great slice. He's got a really good drop shot. He's got really good backhand volley, backhand overhead. Um, defends on the backhand really well. Really good block return. If you put together the whole package, at the end of the day, I'm taking Federer's one-handed backhand. If you're looking at just the topspin backhand, it's certainly Stan Wawrinka. You might say, well, I would take Wawrinka's backhand because the majority of backhands are topspin backhands, hitting over, trading from the baseline. The only thing is, the way Federer needs to play and take the ball on the rise at this point in his career, I don't think that Stan's long backhand, uh, where, where he really needs a lot of time to get that off, I don't think that would fit in with Federer's new game. Now, if you're going to give me, let's say, 2008 Roger Federer, and you could give me like the 2013 Vavrinka backhand, I think that would be gorgeous. So it really depends on play style, though. If you're going to give me a grinder, if I want to be good on clay, for example, give me Stan's backhand. But for an all-court game, for success on, on the faster courts especially, grass, fast, hard courts, I want Federer's backhand. Hope that, I, I hope I answered that question uh, well and not wishy-washy. Since his first two have officially been canceled, let's talk SW19. Which is the best 21st century Wimbledon championship match, in your opinion? Number one, Fedal, Federer Nadal, 2008. 
Number two, Federer Roddick, 2009. Number three, Federer Djokovic, 2019. Um, if you have another, please mention and, uh, and, and let me know the reasons. Well, first of all, I think context-wise, Federer Nadal 2008 was, was the most interesting. Because of what happened in 2007, uh, where Federer got the best of Nadal in five sets and Nadal had chances to win that match, uh, and Nadal had yet to really break through against Federer, on grass. So that really kickstarted their rivalry. And and not that it kickstarted, but it it put a wrench in the Federer Nadal uh the Federer Nadal rivalry. It was also a great, you know, the fourth set tie break in that match was was epic, memorable. Uh the the quality of tennis was higher in that match than Federer Djokovic 2019. Federer Djokovic 2019 was was interesting in terms of the stakes because you could frame it as it was Federer's last chance, but it might have not been. So the the context wasn't as clear. It was a great match, match points, but the quality was higher. Federer Nadal 2008. Federer Roddick 2009 uh, was a choke job by Roddick, but to be honest with you, I got to go back and watch that match. That might be another one that I go back to uh, because... That's a, that's a very distant memory for me, to say the least. Hey, Gil, what's your top three all-time favorite show and why? It can be anything. TV series, sports playoff, documentaries, etc. All right. First of all, I consider myself a really good conversationalist. Meaning, like, I think I'm a well-rounded guy. Not to, like, you know, brag, but it's something I take, I take pride in. However, I know my weak spot. I know my weak spot. TV shows and movies, that's my weak spot. I can talk about food. I can talk about politics in private. I don't share my views. I can talk about um, I can talk about music with people. And of course, I can talk about sports. So I think I'm pretty well-rounded. But uh, that's certainly my, my weak point. Now, I will say this. My favorite show of all time is Breaking Bad. That's the one show that... That my friends bothered me so much that I, I watched it with them and I watched with a couple of friends. That's my favorite show of all time, Breaking Bad. Nothing has ever been like it to me. But again, I don't have much experience watching shows. I'm also a huge, huge fan of ESPN's documentary series, 30 for 30. It is brilliant what uh, Bill Simmons and Connor Shell did um, at ESPN years ago with 30 for 30. Here are the keys to why 30 for 30 is an incredible sports documentary series. One, they do not have a set time on 30 for 30s. The stories are as, are as long as they should be. So they didn't tell the directors, make this an hour or make this 30 minutes or make this two hours. They just said, hey, go make it as long as it should be. And that just makes for better documentaries. They don't drag they're not half-baked. The second key is that you have these incredible directors like Ezra Edelman um, or, uh, I don't know, uh, Spike Lee d directed one. Um, sorry, I, I can't give you a good list off the top of my head. But you have these directors 
and they are not ESPN employees. They're just they're just directors. And ESPN actually uh, contracts them and say, "Hey, what are you passionate? What are you passionate about? Give me your passion project." And and these guys just deliver. The thirty for thirty series is the best thing on ESPN. Now, last thing I'll answer on this question: live sports, not tennis. What is my favorite live sports product that is not tennis? Now, I will admit that um, there is nothing like a super high-stakes fight, in my opinion. And I think that tennis and fighting, I I like them for very similar reasons. The one-on-one tactical battle, the one-on-one kind of mental battle, the simplicity of character versus character. But let me throw that out the window because there's a lot of – that's rare. That's maybe – one to three times a year, you'll have a really great fight. Do I think anything matches that? No. But what delivers on a consistent basis? To me, it's playoff hockey, NHL hockey. The intensity, the fire, the grit, the environments in the arena, um, and the I love how continuous hockey is. It's not stop-start. So nothing like playoff hockey to me. Good question. Will you release a video of you playing tennis? Perhaps highlights. Here's what happened. Last summer, I really was primed to do this. I I so wanted to do it. And uh, I I never got to it, but I really genuinely wanted to do it. Then I I hurt my left knee and I'm, I'm really, I'm hobbling around. And the last year or so, the last, the last six months or so, I have been in the worst form of my life, folks. I have never been worse in my life. I mean, 10-year-old me could beat how I've been playing. I mean, it is it is pathetic. Seriously, it's the worst I've ever been. My movement, I've developed like almost the yips on my backhand, and I've I, I'm past the part of my career where I'm I'm getting coaching, right? Because I'm no longer playing uh, competitively. So my forehand has always been my natural side. My backhand has always been a little bit more unnatural, but I've, it's never been as bad as it is right now. So guys, I just want to get a little bit of form under my belt and I'll get it back. I got to rehab my knee, my left leg, so I can move. Then I got to, uh, I, I got to get some coaching, honestly, and uh, fix some of the technical things that have dissipated. Uh, I haven't had coaching in, in four years now. Um, so I just gotta, I gotta take care of that. And then I promise you, I will do it. And I'll talk about, I'll use it not as just like a, Hey, this is me playing tennis, but we'll, we'll break down the points and, uh, and do some, some fun things with the tactics. And no, don't get me wrong. I'm not looking, you know, I'm not going to impress you guys with how good I am, but I need a little bit of form. I I cannot put myself on YouTube with the state I've been in the last six months. It's been pathetic. And I'm going to, I'm going to solicit someone really good to play against because I want the highest quality. So I'm going to recruit someone for this video who will beat me. I'm saying that right now. Now, the other thing that I could see happening is, uh, you know, we could have a YouTuber versus YouTuber battle. Who knows? Who knows what's in the future? Is there one matchup you'd have loved to see in a tournament that didn't take place? Yeah, it's Federer, and then in parentheses you say it, Federer and Nadal in the U.S. Open. 
Hi, Gil. Can you explain and show the different grips in tennis and share some of the pros and cons maybe? Um, don't have time for that right now. Um, but I'll keep, I'll keep that in mind. I'll keep that in mind. Is this the fastest growing tennis talk show in the world? I don't know. I don't have the statistics on all the tennis talk shows. I will say, um, the coronavirus is not very conducive to, to continuing that, but I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to pump out more content, but I mean, if you just look at my channel, views have been down. There's, I don't think there's anything I can do. I think uh, my subscribers are watching my videos, but that's that's the thing. Here's the thing about views and on on YouTube. A lot of it is search engine. You need unique viewers, people who aren't subscribed. That's that's what makes the difference in a video that gets ten thousand to twenty thousand views. It's not it's not the subscribers. Um, and in order for a video to be made that gets that, you need people searching for what the video is about. So you need a tennis match to, to happen and then people to search the tennis match and then I come up. That's how I get views. Um, now, I'm, I, I love making content for my subscribers, don't get me wrong, but it, it's going to be really hard to grow um, during this time. Why do you think Davidenko had great success against Nadal outside of clay? What is it about Davidenko's game that bothers Rafa so much? Definitely the backhand, uh, hitting the backhand on the rise, taking it on the rise. Um, one of the things that's so deadly about Nadal, a couple things. One of the things is that it's hard to control height if you're not proficient at taking the backhand on the rise. So, in other words, it gets up high on you. The only things that you can do to, to avoid that is you got to move back or you got to move forward. Moving back obviously has its cons. It's exhausting. You can't create offense. Moving, moving forward is a better option, but it's difficult to take the ball on the rise. Davidenko's backhand is so good, he could take it on the rise and still do damage. It's the same reason Fanini has success against Nadal, and it's the same reason Djokovic has success against Nadal. What is the best match you've watched uh, live? Um, I'll answer that in person. Let's talk about that in person. Best match I've watched in person. Um, that's tough. It's probably the 2019, uh, excuse me, the 2009 um, U.S. Open final. Nadal Federer. One of the first matches that I ever saw live, actually. Hi, Gil. I'm a big fan of your channel. Do you think upcoming players like Team and Tsitsipas are going to win a slam before the big three retire? If so, why? Yeah, absolutely, I think they will. I think team is really, really close. Um, and then I think I think it's possible for, for Medvedev and Tsitsipas. Um, I, I still think it's hard to know exactly where Medvedev is at, given his, his uh, trying start to 2020. But, uh, I, I mean, I think, again, I, I think team's really close. I think the other two are there. I think uh, if things really click for Zverev. We could see him coming out of nowhere. So uh, that'll happen. That'll happen. If the tour were to resume as it was next year, what players slash types of players do you think will benefit from time away from the court? My gut tells me Zverev is the one who could benefit. Uh, it's hard to say. Th uh, again, I think 
the elite will benefit from it, and I, I don't think the young players are going to benefit from it. I, I think it'll just delay their development. That's the truth. Really untimely for uh, Monfils. Really untimely for Djokovic, who was who was riding a wave of confidence. Monfils, I think, was really going to have a, a killer year, probably the best of his career. I think Dominic Team will benefit the most from having the French re, uh, rescheduled. Would you agree? I would say the U.S. and the French are his two best slams. Rafa can only go all out at one of them. Team almost won the match against Nole in Australia, and I think the U.S. Open courts are better for a hard hitter who likes time to load on his shots. I agree with you that the U.S. Open and the French are team's best two slams. Um, I agree with you that team could be a beneficiary if these two tournaments happen as scheduled. It's going to be a, a it's going to be extremely physical, extremely physical. And team is one of the most fit players in tennis. He would be very well suited to withstand the physicality of back-to-back -back U.S. Open French Opens. So, yeah, um, fully agree. Team could benefit from that. Of the players that hasn't won a slam so far, um, who do you think would have the best chance of winning a slam given their talent? Uh, the players I'm thinking about are peers of the big three. So players like Sanga, Monfils, Gazquet, and Burdich. So let's, let's just deal with that group. Who do I think had the best chance out of them? Uh, okay. Let's throw out Gazquet. His forehand was never good enough to... He, he never created enough offense. His, his serve wasn't really good enough either. Burdich was... You know, he obtained a pretty high ranking for... You know, he was consistently in the top 10. His movement just wasn't there. Uh, to me, Monfils was never ready until now. You know, now Monfils... And then maybe, maybe somewhat last year, Monfils had the shot selection... Uh, to actually do it, but until then he just he wasn't playing a brand of tennis. He wasn't going to win a major. The answer, most certainly out of that out of that group, is uh, Sanga, who um, he made a major final, right? Australian Open. Djokovic Djokovic beat him uh, to to win his first slam. So I think Sanga. By sheer quality, do you think the Nadal the Djokovic Nadal twenty eighteen Wimbledon semifinal was better? than Federer Nadal Wimbledon 08 final. Not really. I'm not of the opinion that the big three are better now than they were. Now, it, was, it wasn't a big three in 2008. Djokovic wasn't really good yet. But I, I'm not of the opinion that the, the new Federer and the new Nadal are, are better now. I, I still think that when they were willing to do a little bit more grinding, a little bit more running, they still had that offensive capability. I, I think they were a little bit better in the, in the early 2010s and the late 2000s than they are now. Has anybody taken on Noah Rubin's ideas on how to fix the tennis world seriously? Are, they any, are there any other ideas on how to make lower-ranked players earn their living? I like Noah Rubin's ideas um, just because, first of all, it's hard to have any idea. It's hard to have any idea. So props to Noah Rubin for coming up with anything. Uh, but what I like most about Noah Rubin's ideas is he knows that the Grand Slams are, are not going anywhere. 
So Ruben wants to keep the, the Grand Slams, let them be, maybe let the Masters be, but take the 500s, take the 250s, take all that time in the calendar and look yourself in the mirror and decide, look, that's not working. The 500s aren't working. The 250s aren't working. We need to change what we're doing, whether that be team tennis um, or, or somehow making it kind of more of a league structure, whatever it is, it's got to be revamped. And I like that thinking. I think it's correct. Does age slow down footwork? Generally, yes. Hi, Gil. Love your show. Please talk about Marit Safin and his influence on modern tennis. Safin um, was a player who was probably the first, the first athlete we saw who defied what we know about size. Marin Cilic followed Safin. Karen Hatchinoff followed Safin. Del Potro followed Safin. Um, who else? Who am I missing? Burdich followed Safin. A player, a, a big player who moved really well for his size, who could hit really big off of both wings. It just so happens to be that that play style, there have been many top 10 players who have implemented that play style, but the big three have really picked apart all of them. Because although Safin moved well for 6-5, and although all the players I just mentioned moved well for their size, they still couldn't defend at the elite level. And it turns out you have a player like Federer Nadal Djokovic who can really defend better than them and attack just as well as them. That's what, that's what happened. Who do you find the most enjoyable player to watch on form? I, I don't know. Not sure. Not sure. Uh, just a couple more here, guys. Was, uh, why isn't there an ATP version to Sei uh, Sue or Aggie Rudwanska who operate with great touch and almost no speed? Sue has consistently been in the upper rankings for years while playing a totally different game style. Weird angles, squash shots, drop shots, lobs, taking pace off the ball. Why isn't there a guy doing similar stuff? Hmm. Here's, here's why, in my opinion. Su Wei takes advantage of, of um, certain areas where a lot of players are uncomfortable in the women's game. The, the women's game, there's just a lot less uh, feel, um, generally, uh, less net play, less slice. And it's, be, it's a bit more of a baseline game compared to the men's game. So when Su Wei does these things like constant drop shots and short angles, and Radwanska was a little bit similar, uh, they're taking advantage of areas where players are uncomfortable. And I think generally in the men's game, players are a little bit more comfortable. Uh, more comfortable in the midcourt, more comfortable at the net, more comfortable playing cat and mouse. Um, and I think that's the answer in short. Do you agree with Jeff that serve and volley has died out because people don't practice it enough? I think it's more due to the racket technology myself. I think it's a combination. Like, I think what happened here pretty much is we're all influenced by, by other players. Coaches are influenced by other players. And I think that people started to pick and part serve volley players, but when, when guys like Nadal, 
who probably has the greatest passing shots of all time. When, when a guy like Nadal and Federer and Agassi have um, this newfound, incredible ability to hit passing shots and returns that, that never existed, I think coaches, they did kind of do a 180. And they did kind of decide, oh, wow, you know, we need to rethink the way that we train our players. So I do think unequivocally that the level of volleying has declined. There, there just aren't players who are consistent, difficult volley makers at the level with the big serve that there used to be. The, the player doesn't exist. However, I don't think if that player existed, I don't think they'd be winning slams. I think that they, you know, if Pat Rafter, let's just say if Pat Rafter played today, I think he'd be a top 25 player at times. I, I just don't think he'd win a slam with, with modern racket technology. The, the angles are too sharp. It's too, it's too easy to get the ball low. Last one. What do you think is the grand slam ceiling for next-gen players in terms of number of slams won? Taking into account the continued dominance of the big three. Also, I'm, clear, I'm curious if you believe Rafa can sustain a high level of play till 2024 when he can participate in the Paris Olympics on clay. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, didn't, I, I haven't thought about the 2024 Olympics. Uh, I, I don't like predicting longevity. 2024 sounds like it's too long to me, but who knows? I really don't like predicting longevity. Grand Slam ceiling for next-gen players will depend on if a incredibly and extremely dominant player emerges. Very, very hard to say. This is what I mean. You could see you could see a scenario where no one really takes the sport by the horns like the big three have. And then you'll have this even spread where, you know, a player might have seven like John McEnroe or, uh, you know, a player might have three or four and then two and then one player just won one and then one played five, right? And you won't see this astronomical number or it really depends. Like what will Carlos Alcatraz become? It's so early in his career. Carlos Alcatraz, a guy like that, I mean... He could be the next, he could be the second coming. You know, he could, he could win slams in the teens. He could break the slam record at this point. That's how, that's how early it is in his development. That's how hard it is to say. It's looking to me right now that between, you know, Tsitsipas and Medvedev and Felix and Zverev and Shapovalov, it's looking like no one's going to be it's, it's looking like no one's going to match the greatness of the big three. What's going to happen? They're going to share their slams. They're going to be spread out. So no one's going to get up there. But who knows? What about the next crop? What about Yannick Sinner? What about Carlos Alcatraz? That's the question. All right. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad I could do this. Um, and uh, maybe I'll do it more. Maybe it'll be a series in the future. Um, on Friday, I'll talk to Steve Flink about the 1984 French Open final between Yvonne Lendl and Patrick McEnroe. See you then. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.